Let's turn in the New Testament book of Philippians to chapter 4, shall we? This is four powerful chapters that we've been looking at in this so-called prison epistle. Uh, So-called because when Paul was under house arrest in Rome, uh, he wrote uh, several letters to several churches uh, that make us richer for his having written them. Ephesians and Philippians, he wrote personal letters, all to encourage. Now, Paul is under house arrest, but you'd never know that by the theme It's throughout the book. It's a theme of rejoicing. And, and there's a part of you that says, aren't you in touch with reality? Don't you know you're under house arrest? Don't you know that you could be executed? Don't you know that you could be found guilty in this trial, falsely accused? Don't, why aren't you worried about these things, Paul? Why are you worried? Paul didn't seem to much care about his imprisonment, barely mentions it at all. His theme is rejoicing, rejoicing, rejoicing. Not in his circumstances. Here's where we get mixed up. Well, I don't feel like rejoicing. It has nothing to do with your feelings. Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit of God. Are you filled with His Holy Spirit? If not, get more in His Word, more into prayer, and more into worship, and you'll get there. You'll get there. But you have to be proactive in seeking these things out. It doesn't happen if you're not earnest. You too, like the rest of the world, can become lukewarm. All you have to do to become lukewarm as a Christian is nothing. Don't read. Don't pray. Don't go to church. Don't worship. Don't fellowship. And you too can be just like the world. You may be going to heaven, but you'll look more like the world than anything that dwells in heaven above. Paul writes this book so we can refocus it's not about you. It's not about your problems. It's not about your dysfunctional past. It's about Jesus Christ. And greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Then what should I worry about? Nothing. Why do I worry? Because I'm in sin. It's just that cut and dried. If you're not walking by faith, you're walking in fear, and that is sin. My Bible says perfect love casts out all fear. So what should we do? Refocus. Refocus. I found it fascinating that nearly all the songs we sang this morning have to do with your eyes. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. <laughs> what do we focus on? That's what Paul will bring our attention to. I want you to notice there in verse 1 of chapter 4 something that really doesn't belong there. It really belongs in context and in content with the previous section of Scripture found in chapter 3. Now, don't think that blasphemy. Don't think that blasphemy that I said that. Chapter and verse divisions were not in the original text when Paul wrote the letter. Chapter and verse divisions were added hmm, about 1227 by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. Stephen Langton. Helps us to navigate our way through the Bible. We're very grateful for it. But he must have been burning a midnight oil on this one to include verse 1 of chapter 4 and in this chapter, not the previous. He completely missed the context. You don't even know how it applies. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. You go, what? How? How should I stand for? Well, that's why it belongs in the previous chapter, because there he told us 
how to, to stand firm in the Lord. Everything in chapter 3, the church should be following Paul's spiritual example. He had told us to continuously continue forgetting the past. Remember that back in verse 13 of chapter 3? Continuously continuing forgetting the past. It's a participle. You've got to keep on doing it. It's not just a one-shot deal. Well, I'll put the past behind me and never dwell on it again. Satan will be sure to bring it back to your remembrance, and then it's up to you to take captive that thought and give it to Jesus Christ, or for you to dwell on it and become increasingly dysfunctional. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new in Christ Jesus. But some of us don't experience that. Oh, my past. Oh, I was so dysfunctional. Oh, I was such a hot mess. Newsflash, you still are. You're better than you were, thank you, Jesus. But you are not yet the person you're going to be. We're, every one of us, we're a work under construction. But I have a part in this construction. God has done His part. He has sent His Son. He's given us His Word. He's filled us with His Holy Spirit. What is our reasonable response? Verse 13 of chapter 3, continuously continuing to forget the past. Put it behind you. It's who you were. It's not who you are. Stop listening to the voice of the devil. Straining towards what is ahead. Does that describe your Christian walk? Straining with everything that is within you to pursue Christ and Christ's likeness. He said in verse 14 of chapter 3, continuously pressing on towards Christian maturity. I want to be like Jesus. I want to have more of his attributes in and through my life. When I read in Galatians 5 that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, even just going down through that list reminds me, boy, I got a lot of work in each of those areas to go. So the more I surrender, the more I die to the sinful fallen flesh, the more those Christ-like attributes become a part of my life. I don't acquire them by trying harder but by dying daily, picking up my cross daily, pick, denying myself and following Him. Does that describe your Christian walk, continuously pressing on towards Christian maturity, or, or do you kind of have your Christian walk on cruise control? Reminds me of the old guy who sued the RV company. He'd gotten in a terrible accident, he and his wife, and he went back to the company that sold him the RV, and he says, you guys lied to me. You said, if I push this button here, it'll be on autopilot, and so I, on a trip, I pushed the autopilot button like you said, and I went in the back to take a nap and go to the restroom, and we crashed the RV. That's not autopilot. There is no such thing in the Christian life. There may be a cruise control in your RV, but there is no such thing in the Christian life. If you're not moving forward, you're falling back. If you're not gaining ground, you're losing ground. There is no in-between. So Paul reminds us that we have a responsibility here. Here's the problem. Your flesh is lazy. Did, did you know that? Everybody else around you knows that. Did you know that? You don't want to read, oh, I can always find a thousand other things to do. Oh, this TV show's on. Oh, my sports game is, is coming on. I, 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 you know, I'll get up early and have a quiet time daily? What are you, like a fringe lunatic, Pastor Jim? No, I'm a normal Christian. That's what normal Christians should do. 
Not because it's legalistically required of you and I, but I'm a better man when I do. You're a better man, a better woman in Christ Jesus when you regularly read His Word and pray and seek His face and involve yourself, not as a spectator, but as a participant in praise and worship. Can I tell you, on Sunday morning, we're not singing songs. It's an opportunity of surrender where afresh you come into the presence of God and you empty yourself and you ask Him to fill you afresh with His Holy Spirit. These are songs of surrender. These are songs like open the eyes of my heart, Lord, where I refocus because I've been all week long looking down here. Oh, the war in Ukraine. Oh, the economy. Oh, the cost of living. Oh, the, I didn't get this raise. And oh, my life's so hard. And <sighs> Elevate your eyesight. Elevate your eyesight. That's what Paul is encouraging us to do. We should have our minds, according to the previous chapter, verses 19 through 21, set your minds on heavenly things, not earthly things. Here's the problem. The earth shouts loud for our attention. Oh, I got to take care of this. Oh, I got to run to Walmart. Oh, I got to take care of this on my list. And oh, this and that and that and this. Satan wants to tie you to the tyranny of the urgent. You have to be willful to say, no. If I don't have time for God, I don't have time for anything else. My wife's got a sign in our dining room. It says, nobody eats until we say amen. Yeah, that's right. Let's make God the first priority there. I, I'm not, I can't be so hungry that I just dive into the meal and forget who provided it for me. And yet my prayer life should not just consist of, of prayers offered before I eat a meal. If that's your prayer life, needs work. There's room for improvement. I want to have my mind set on heavenly things, not earthly. Christ is coming back. Christ is coming back soon by the signs of the times that are all around us. The question is, are you eagerly looking forward to Christ's return? Or when I say Christ's return, are you instantly drawn to all of the things that you leave behind? You mean I leave my fancy car behind? Yeah, it'll burn. It'll burn. That's why it's so, it, relatively speaking, it's unimportant. Would you miss your house? Oh, wouldn't trade my heavenly dwelling for any house on earth. But it's a matter of focus. I don't want to obsess about the possessions that I have or who's going to argue about my inheritance that I leave them. I, I want to be fixated on Christ. If I keep my eyes there, everything else will turn out just fine. I'm eagerly looking forward to Christ's second return. You know why? In part, because it's the day of our transformation. It says we will become, when we see Him, we will be like Him. Transformed bodies, no more aches or pains or sickness or COVID or flus or lock-ins. Nobody in heaven wears a mask. <laughs> I'm anticipating our transformation that he had referred to in verse 21 of the previous chapter. Someday He is going to transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious bodies. That's how you stand firm. That's why He says that in verse 1. really belongs in the previous chapter, but we'll cut the old Dr. Stephen Langton a little slack here. But that is how you stand firm. You say, well, how can I hang in there in a day and age that's known for compromise? How can I stand against that without looking like some holier-than-thou religious zealot or something? Well, Paul's just outlined this for us. If we would just do those things, 
But we don't. We allow Satan to rub our nose in our dysfunctional past. We allow him to remind us of our mistakes that have been repented of and renounced. But we listen to that voice. The average Christian does not take captive every thought. The average Christian is just like the world. It just allows their mind to go here and there and all over the place. And you don't take captive anything. But you assume all of those thoughts are your thoughts, but they may have been planted by Satan. It may be the Holy Spirit of God trying to get your attention. Could be your sinful fallen flesh, but you're not taking those thoughts captive and say, Jesus, would you take my thought life? Did you know that Jesus wants to be Lord of your thought life? Most of us don't act like like he's interested in our thought life at all. And we tend to be neglectful of obeying scriptural commands, you must take captive every thought. Otherwise, you'll let Satan jerk you around like a small dog on a long chain. Don't let him do that. You've got to take captive your thoughts. If there is an impure thought, say, Jesus, take that out of my mind. Satan, I renounce you in the name and power and authority of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. Get out of my head. You are going to have to say that a thousand times a day when you first start but it gets better over time. But you have to begin taking captive every thought. You will be held accountable for doing that. It's a clear command of Scripture. We, how can we excuse our disobedience? We cannot. Remember the Philippian believers were living in a Greco-Roman pagan society that was as full of corruption and immorality, entertainment and excess as anything going on today. No, they didn't have the Internet. They didn't have computers. Some would say, praise the Lord. But they still were steeped in all of the things that tear us away from our attention to Jesus Christ. And all of those things that the early church fought against, Satan was trying to invade the church with this whole entertainment thing, this whole excess and immorality and corruption, all of that with Satan is trying to infiltrate into the church, just... So today is not so different than Paul's day. They struggled with the same things that you and I do. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, as John talks about later. Now what follows then in verse 2 is a series of exhortations. An exhortation is a strong word, understand that, in the original language. It means more than to just advise. It means more than just to admonish. It means to pursue someone to the point that there is a change in their conduct. Did you catch that? The purpose of exhortation, the purpose of Paul's exhortations and mine this morning is so that you might change. If we don't change, then why are we here? If we're not growing, what is the point of even gathering together? If we're not going to invite Christ's presence and ask Him to make my heart His home, what's the point? (coughs) Excuse me. Jesus has to be the center of, of all that we do. Exhortation always aims at change, changed behavior, changed conduct, changed thought life, changed life, changed priorities. Now, what he goes on to do in verse 2 is Euodia and Syntyche are two apparently prominent ladies in the church, the home church, at Philippi. 
And there was a serious enough disagreement between these two ladies in the church that Paul wrote a letter that was read to the entire congregation to humiliate them. Can you imagine Pastor Jim standing up here next Sunday morning and saying, well, this person here, and I call out your name, and this person over here, and I call out their name, you two guys need to get your act together. You would say, well, nobody does that. Mm, That's a shame. Paul felt that their disagreement between these two godly women that had an issue that was unresolved, nobody wanted to come alongside him and help him with that. So he says in verse 2, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. In other words, can we bring whatever disagreement you have to reconciliation? Can we just say it's not that important? I plead with you. It translates the Greek word parakaleo, which means to come alongside of, to encourage, to exhort. And it has a fairly firm tone to it here. Euodia, Syntyche, they're to quit arguing. They're to, to stop the division that exists between the two of them. Be of one mind in the Lord. Many people have disagreements and arguments over nothing that mean nothing and prove nothing. But somehow or another, they do it anyway. In the body of Christ, it should not be so. The church has in times past argued over how many angels could sit on the head of a pin. Who cares? By the way, can I tell you the answer to that riddle? Just as many as God wants to. Just as many as God wants to. Yet Paul is is absolutely confident of their reconciliation, and he's so tactful. He doesn't choose sides, but he encourages others to take an active role in their reconciliation. Didn't Jesus say, blessed are the peacemakers? They should be called the sons of God. Well, let's look how that's played out. Verse 2, I plead with you, Odia. I plead with Sandy. Could you agree with each other in the Lord? Yes. And I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, literally, Zizigis, it appears to be a man's personal name, your loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. He doesn't take sides, but boy, I'll bet that was embarrassing and humbling for the issue to have gone on for so long that Paul had to address it in a public letter. All of these letters were read by the pastor of the church. Oh, we got a letter this morning from Paul. I need to read it to you guys. And everything is fine till he hits chapter 4. And oh, yo, Euodia and Syntyche, you two chicks, need to get together. Need to get together. And it's a command. You need to do this because it's been going on so long. And so he asks this, apparently, uh, perhaps a deacon, perhaps an elder in the church, Zizigis, which is here translated loyal yoke fellow, but it appears to be a proper noun, not just somebody in the church. <clears throat> this is a man who was, had a place in, of leadership in the church. Paul is confident of their reconciliation, doesn't mind going out on a bit of a limb and calling sin, sin in the lives of two people by name in the church. But that was only necessary because they had refused to deal with it themselves. Just like the church today. 
There's an offense. There's a harsh word. There's some misunderstanding between a brother or a, or a sister. And rather than reconcile it, rather than go to the church leadership looking for a little help in reconciling it, it is far too easier today to just split. I'm just leaving the church. The number one reason that people leave the church today, the number one reason is unresolved conflict. And yet the Bible is full of advice as to how to resolve conflict. But Christians don't do it today. Well, I'm not into confrontation. See it as reconciliation, not confrontation. See it as being biblically obedient versus disobedient. No, 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 I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to hold a grudge against him and go on to the next church. Great, so you bring that same baggage to the next church and then the next and then the next and the next, and you never resolve biblically issues that you've got with a brother or sister in the congregation. When it would be so much easier to just go to them and say, you know, I, I probably misunderstood you or misheard you, but, you know, what you said the other day, that, that really hurt me. Could, you, could we talk about that for just a minute? Just do it one-on-one. Just do it. You're plenty enough mature to handle these things on your, on your own, but if you can't, I would be glad to be a peacemaker at any time at all, and I can volunteer anybody who's in leadership in our church to do the same. I know sometimes it's a little awkward. It's sometimes a little hard. Can I tell you, being obedient to the commands of Christ are always a little hard because your flesh is going to war against that. It's your flesh. See it for what it is. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord, and show me that I've been biblically disobedient. You see, there was only one church at Philippi. So you leave that church, there was no place else to go. You leave Calvary Chapel Eastside, there's 400 other churches in Colorado Springs you can go to and carry that same baggage with you. Here's the problem. You're biblically disobedient if you've left a church without resolving the conflict that caused your departure. You've got to deal with it and stop making excuses why we don't deal with it. Oh, I'm just not going to say anything about it. That burying it just means it comes up later. You can't bury these things. That's why the Bible spends so much time telling us how to reconcile these things. There are some that have suggested these two ladies may have had home fellowships, and one was a kind of a Gentile home fellowship and the other one a Jewish, perhaps, but it doesn't tell us in the text. Others uh, suggest that they were women of rank, perhaps even deaconesses in the church there at Philippi, but nobody, the pastor included, had the guts to call them on account and say, we need to deal with this. Satan's got a foothold in our church through division. And we've got to get this air cleared between the two of us. We've got to be heavenly minded because we're bogged down in the petty, silly stuff down here. So he calls upon in verse 3 this man, Zizigus. Tradition has it, by the way, early Christian tradition, that this loyal yoke fellow has been identified as the Philippian jailer that Paul led to the Lord after that miraculous earthquake, you'll remember, sprang all of the cells open when he was incarcerated. It's Acts chapter 16. Uh, it threatened the jailer's life. He was going to take his own life. And Paul said, no, 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 don't do that. We're all here. And the jailer came in and said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul led him to the Lord. Well, tradition, early church tradition, tells us that this is the same guy, Zizigus, this loyal yoke fellow, that Paul is asking, hey, would you help these gals resolve this conflict? 
Sometimes in our smugness, we can say, well, I don't really feel any conflict in my heart. I've, just, I've let it go. You know, love covers a multitude of sins. But then you talk about it behind other people's back. That's not scriptural. Now you've committed the double sin of irreconciliation. Now it compounded that with slander and gossip. Don't ever call counseling slander and gossip or vice versa. When you're talking about somebody who's not present, in unflattering terms, you've committed a sin that needs to be repented of. But to ask somebody in leadership, you know, this is bothering me. I want this reconciled, and I don't know if I can do it. Would you sit down with us? Be a peacemaker. You don't always have to call upon pastors and deacons and elders to do that. Anybody in this room can be a peacemaker. Well, I don't like sticking my nose in other people's business. You'd rather see the church destroyed? You'd rather see Satan get a foothold? Be a peacemaker. Look for opportunities. I'm not saying stick your nose in everybody else's business, but when the opportunity presents itself to be a peacemaker, step up to the challenge and be that peacemaker. And do it by the power of God's Holy Spirit. But few are interested in reconciliation today. It's just easier to move on to the next church with issues unresolved. That doesn't glorify God. It just hamstrings the work and person and credibility of the church. What is interesting to me in verse 3 that stands out besides this, this loyal yoke fellow, Zizekus, <clears throat> he says, Help these women who have contended at my side for the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. These two gals are saved. They're godly women. They just got an issue. Don't we all? Don't we all? Every one of us has strengths. Every one of us has weaknesses. And it is true that love covers a multitude of sins. But what you want is sin to be practiced less in the body of Christ, less in your own life. We want to be biblically obedient Christians, don't we? Jesus said, it's not those that call him Lord, Lord, that make it into heaven, but those that do the will of his Father in heaven. This is the will of God. The reconciliation take place. The book of life. My name is written in the book of life. That, that word only occurs, the book of life, that phrase only occurs eight times in the whole Bible, half of them in the book of Revelation. The book of life, Revelation 3.5, when Jesus speaks to the church at Sardis, he says, He who overcomes will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot his name from the book of life but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. I want to be biblically obedient for that reason. My name is written in the book of life. I want to do what pleases him. Revelation 20, verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
This is a fairly exclusive club. You and I are a remnant these last days of people hungry for the Lord, obedient to His Word, and longing for the work and person of His Holy Spirit to come in us, work on us, so He can work through us. But He has to follow that exact tact. He's got to come upon us. He's got to work in us first. There is such a problem in the church today of, of blame shifting. I guess it's been going on since Adam, where God showed up in the Garden of Eden and said, what have you guys done? And Adam says, hey, this chick you made, she enticed me to sin. And then he looked at the woman, he said, what you, what? And he said, she said, no, 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 wasn't me, wasn't me. It was the snake. And so God turns to the snake and said, would you tell me the truth? What happened? And he goes on to tell him. We've been dodging the bullet of personal responsibility ever since. It's our nature, our old nature, not the new one, to be sure. But my name has been written in the book of life. I want to act like it. I am a child of God. I should look like it. I should act like it. I should talk like it. I have to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ because Satan plants a thousand of his thoughts in your head every day. You've got to know. Well, how do I know it's the voice of Satan? Yeah, I don't. It all sounds alike because it comes through my mind, my consciousness. I don't know if it's God or if it's me or if it's Satan. How do I tell? Does it line up with God's Word? That's the test. Doesn't matter if it comes from your sinful, fallen flesh. That's to be rejected. Doesn't matter if it comes from Satan. That's to be rejected too. Does it line up with the Word of God? If it is, it's God. Take captive every thought that is not of God. Sometimes that's going to mean turning off your TV. Well, I'll tell you what, some of the commercials that are on TV today would have been called pornography 20 years ago. You know, they got commercials on there. I'm going, oh, man, it's time to go get a hot dog or something. I, I turn it off, you know, I hit, hit the off button, and I think time to go get something to eat or drink or something because I'm, I'm just I'm embarrassed by these things. I'm embarrassed by these things. You know, with summertime approaching, have you noticed that sometimes people walk into Walmart inappropriately clothed? I don't want to embellish upon that too much. I mean, to me, it's bad enough that people would go to the store in their jammies. I, I don't get that. My mom told me, if you're going to go somewhere publicly, put on clothes. You don't go in your jammies and your flip-flops as much as I'd like to. My wife said, no, I can't do that. But I find that the warmer the temperatures get, the skimpier people tend to dress. And I find that that stumbles especially men. You know how I know that's true? Because it just got so stinking quiet. Well, uh, what do I do, Pastor Jim? I got I to get to the store. I got to get some groceries. I mean, they're scantily clad and hanging out of their clothes and all the rest of that muck. You know, what do I do? Watch your feet. What? Okay. I'm not looking here. I'm not looking there. I'm not looking. What am I? Watch your feet because your eyes will get you in trouble. The world is a pagan place just trying to get you to sin, trying to get you to lust, trying to get you to look a second time. That is sin. It's only two places in this world you're safe in keeping your eyes. It's either on the ground or in the heavens above. 
I like to keep reminding my feet because I don't know where they're going, but I like to keep reminding myself that I'm a citizen of heaven. So I keep my eyes on the prize, and I want to please him. So what, guys, what do you do? Look at the ground when you're walking in Walmart as the temperatures increase. Ladies, help your husbands. First of all, slap them. If they look inappropriately to somebody else, a second look, you slap them. Then you say, look at your feet, dummy. <laughs> Satan's get his hooks in you, and you're looking at somebody inappropriately. Keep your eyes on your toes. Okay? Are we crystal clear on those instructions? I'll bet you there's going to be a lot of slapped guys tomorrow. <laughs> Next Sunday, every guy in the room is going to hate me. When I walked into Walmart, my wife smacked me. <laughs> yeah. It ain't my fault, it's yours. Hmm? You know what I'm saying? If you get slapped, it ain't my fault, it's yours. Wives, remind your hubbies of this. Did you know that biologically men have skulls that are approximately twice as thick as a woman's? All the wives are going, yeah, I know he had a thick skull. Yeah, not a problem. <laughs> Don't have to tell me that. Sometimes guys need help from their wives. That's part of taking captive every thought, making it obedient to Christ Jesus. You've got to be careful. Well, does it really matter, Pastor Jim? Everything matters if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Do, do I fully expect you to be obedient to this? You betcha. Absolutely. Because if I run upon you in Walmart and you're there by yourself, Mr. Guy, and you're looking at something inappropriate, feel, yeah, I mean, it's coming. Somebody's going to slap you upside your head and go, whoa, 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 whoa. Be Pastor Jim loving on you. Let's hold each other accountable. And that's all Paul was asking of Zizigas. Help these two gals. They've got to struggle. Satan's getting a foothold in their lives and in the life of the church. Come alongside them. Let's help each other out in these matters. I'm obviously being a... No, I'm really not exaggerating this morning. I think we need to take concretely these things. I'm not here to tickle your ears. I'm here to change your life. I'm here to help your marriage. I'm here to help you live a life that's more pleasing to the Lord. Why? Because your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You need help. We need each other in this. No man's perfect. No woman is perfect. But let's hold each other accountable a little bit. There's a limit to what I can do by way of accountability, but I can, I can help. My wife can help me. I can help her in the struggles that are a part of life in a sinful, fallen world. The knowledge that we're headed to heaven should keep a smile on our faces 24-7. The, the promise of heaven alone, it should, pop, it should prompt every one of us to perpetual praise. Oh, yeah, but I don't feel good. We groan. Who cares? I'm not going to hell. It's a good day. Well, I'm not appreciated at work. We cry. Who cares? We're going to heaven. Someday it's going to come upon us. Yeah, I won the lottery. So what? That's nothing compared to heaven. Let's keep our eyes on that heavenly reward. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. This is a command in the original language. It's a Greek imperative. Rejoice. How can he command rejoicing? Because joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's not something you muster up. You're commanded to rejoice because if your eyes are on heaven, 
you can't do anything else but that. If your eyes are on yourself and your performance, you'll always be downcast. If your eyes are on an imperfect world, prepare to be distressed by that, worried by that, angered by that. Rejoice, not in your circumstances. Look at verse 4 carefully. Rejoice in what? In the Lord. You can always rejoice because that doesn't change. Your circumstances change all the time. Don't rejoice in your circumstances. Woo, it's a good day. I got a bonus at work or I got a, a fat paycheck coming in or things are well, you know. Rejoice in the Lord, not your circumstances. That's why it can be commanded. It's a fruit of God's Holy Spirit abiding in me. So I can have joy. I may not like my circumstances. They may be terrible. But can I rejoice I'm still going to heaven? Yeah. Can I rejoice my name is written in the Lamb's book of life? Absolutely. Can I rejoice that he's got this? If he created the universe, what problem do I face that he's not greater than? So he, he's got this. Rejoice, joy, joy, joy. It's mentioned all over 16 times in these four little bitty teeny passages here that we have before us. Re rejoice not in my circumstances, not in my circumstances. Rejoice in the Lord. Look at verse 4 carefully. How often? Ah, you read so good. Always. That's a challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge. But I've committed myself to pursuing that. I want, how much, we all want more love, more joy, more peace, more patience. We all need that desperately. But are we pursuing that? Because it doesn't happen accidentally. If you're not in the Word of God, if you're not in praise and worship, if you're not in prayer, if you're not in fellowship, these things don't happen accidentally. You have to pursue them. It's like there's a treasure that is waiting for us, but we actually have to go and get it. How often do we rejoice in the Lord? Always. Why? First of all, it's commanded. All of these verbs here are present active imperatives. It's a command. That's why I should rejoice in the Lord. Secondly, our future and our reward is sure. I'm going to heaven as bad as life can get. Can I tell you? It's temporary. You're not always going to be here. This world is not our home. Our reward is sure. And that's what he says there in verse 4. Our, our Lord is near. If I'm abiding in him and Jesus is abiding in me, then I'll have joy. If I don't have joy, it's an indicator that something's wrong in my Christian walk. Why am I allowing Satan to defeat me? when God has such incredible riches for us. An Old Testament prophet by the name of Habakkuk said this in chapter 3 of the book that bears his name, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Because my hope has to rise above the circumstances that I find myself in. You know, I'm paying $10 a gallon for gasoline. Okay, but you're going to heaven. It's still, it's still it's going to be okay in the long run. Oh, but Pastor Jim, the prices are rising faster than my paycheck. Welcome to life in the real world. God provides. Trust in Him. 
James 1, verses 2 through 5 said this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, not lacking anything. If any one of you lacks wisdom, he should ask of God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given him. Ask God. Not to take you out of the trial. Ask Him what you're supposed to learn in the trial. Ask Him to be Lord of the trial. There's always lessons to be learned. First Peter put it this way. Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when, his, when He is revealed, His glory is revealed. I can't always rejoice in my circumstances, but I can always rejoice in the Lord if I choose to. You hear the personal responsibility that's tied up in that? If I choose to. So if Pastor Jim asks you sometime, oh, how are you doing? I'm joyful in the Lord. Because your circumstances, they'll be up and down and all around. Well, I'm sick. I got the flu. I got aches and pains and whatever. Yeah, doesn't everybody. Okay. My eyes can't be on my infirmities forever. It's a sad thing when all we talk about is each other's aches and pains. Really? Is that all there is to your Christian walk? Well, my last doctor visit. Where's your walk with the Lord? Where's your joy? Where's your joy? I can rejoice in the Lord. He goes on in verse 5 and says, Let your gentleness be evident to all, for the Lord is near. Your gentleness. Gentleness, it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Mentioned in Galatians 5, isn't it? Gentleness. It's especially essential to church leaders in 1 Timothy 3. We pastors must be gentle as opposed to being violent in temper or otherwise. Titus 3, 2 says elders must be peaceable and considerate, showing humility to all men. Guys struggle with this, but I think it's because we maybe misunderstand what biblical gentleness is. Biblical gentleness, in the old King James, it says meekness, and we get the idea that because meek and weak rhyme with each other, that they mean the same thing, and nothing could be further from the truth. Gentleness is the strength of God in control of my life. It's the same word that the Greeks used to break a horse. You didn't break a horse to break his spirit. You broke a horse to make him usable and rideable. It's strength under control. That's what it is. Gentleness is strength under control. It is God breaking me of my selfish, self-centered will to accommodate His. He is breaking me just like horses must be broken, Christians must be broken as well. A trip to the cross will do that. Regularly take a trip to the cross. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Him. That's what Jesus requires of us. Gentleness is simply Christ-like consideration of others. It's to be temperate, to be, to be patient. The, the Greek word literally means to be appropriate, to be mild, to be gentle, moderate, patient. Why? 
as the Lord is near, not only is His second coming near, but doesn't the Bible say that where two or more are gathered in His name, there He is? He's already here. He's coming for His bride, but can I tell you, we stand and sit in His presence this morning. He is here because of His promise where two or more are gathered in His name. That's why I'm here. Meeting with you is wonderful. Meeting with Christ is everything. If Christ doesn't come, if we don't swing wide open the door of our hearts every Sunday morning and every Wednesday night and say, Lord, make my heart your home. If we don't swing wide open the, the doors of this church and peel back the roof and invite His presence, it's not church. It's just a show, a dog and pony show where we got professional musicians and, and top-notch caliber entertainment. Uh, these things characterize the world, should not characterize the church. The church should be a collection of people uh, that gather to seek His face with all of their hearts, not critique the music or the Sunday school or the pastor or its teaching style or how comfy the chairs are. The purpose in coming to church should be to touch the hem of His garment, to be like that woman who was on her knees and had the issue of blood for 12 years, but knew in her heart of hearts, if I could just touch if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. I know Christ to be that powerful. He's the Son of God. All I've got to do is touch. You should be that person every Sunday, every Wednesday, on your knees, humbled in heart, coming, saying, Jesus, I just want to touch the hem of your garment. I just want to see your face. We sang it this morning. Show me your glory. Show me your glory. We're not just singing songs, we're inviting His presence. That's what praise and worship is all about. It has nothing to do with whether you can sing or not. You sing at the top of your voice and make a joyful noise unto the Lord. If God wanted to hear a different voice out of you, He'd have given you one. Apparently, He likes the one you got, whether you do or not. <clears throat> I used to think, boy, when I get to heaven, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sing like whoever, somebody else. And then God said to me, and suppose you sound exactly the same up there that you do down here. Apparently, he likes the voice that he's given us. That's amazing to me. That is amazing to me. So, it's really the attitude of the heart. When you come into church on Sunday, be hungry for God's presence. And don't come for any other reason. Come to touch the face of God. And if you leave here and haven't experienced that, You've done something terribly wrong. He loves you so very, very much. You need to understand that. He's got a plan for your life that's better than anything you could have ever dreamt up. Surrender. Every Sunday morning, it's an opportunity to surrender afresh. Every song that we sing, it's another opportunity to surrender afresh, to seek His face, to lay down my pride, to lay down my guilt, my shame, my inadequacies. Because my name is written in the book of life. It's not that these things print my name in the book of life. I do these things because it is written there already. I rejoice in the Lord, not just because it's commanded, but because I'm really glad I'm saved. The Lord is near, nearer now than when we first believed, Romans 13, 11 says. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We need His presence in the church. We need His power in the church. We are the church so what Paul is saying is just avoid extravagant excess because the Lord is here among us and He's coming back for us. 
I don't need to get all caught up in earthly things. Does it make sense? I don't care what you drive. I don't care whose brand name clothes you wear. I don't care what your, your sneakers say. These things are immaterial and are on the minds of people that are very immature in their faith. These things do not matter in heaven. Why do they matter so much on earth? Because we're carnal. Because we're not thinking heavenly, we're thinking earthly. Failing to remember our citizenship is in heaven. Verse 6, if I could draw your attention to that as we close. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Man, if there is a highlighter passage in this book, it is that. Do not be anxious about anything. Now, because in the original Greek language, they didn't bold type things to draw your attention to them. They didn't underline things or write in all capital letters. What they did to really emphasize something in the original Greek is make it the first word of the sentence. First word of the sentence in the Greek of verse 6 is anything. Don't be anxious about anything, not your health, not your job, not your 401k, not gas prices or, or inconveniences at Walmart or what they're out of. Anything. It stands at the beginning of the sentence by way of emphasis, and it, it's a present imperative in prohibition. You go, what does that mean? It means stop being anxious. It means you are. Stop it. Most of us possess enough spiritual snobbery to say, well, I'm not anxious about anything. I'm just concerned. Oh, that sounds so spiritual and so smug. It makes me want to, you know. <clears throat> How about a little honesty? Some of us are paralyzed by fear. Not trying to be sexist, but I know many women really struggle with the issue of fear, doubt, and insecurity. And husbands, are, by and large, are not doing a really good job today helping their wives in these areas of fear and doubt and anxiety. We need to be sensitive to that. That's where Satan is trying to harm our precious wives. We need his peace, absolutely. We need him to take control of every aspect of our lives. Absolutely. But if I find myself anxious, what should I do? He tells us, read on there in verse 8, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. I can thank God for an outcome that's not even seen yet because I know he loves me. Everything is going to turn out just fine in the long run if I just keep my eyes on him. So I can thank him even while I'm offering up my prayers and petitions, because otherwise I'm bearing a burden he never meant for me to bear. He died so that you and I carry no burdens in this life. Every burden he took to the cross. But sometimes, some of us hang on to those burdens. No, 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 I want to keep this one, Jesus. I want to worry about this. I want to stress about this. My health, my job, my future, my kids, my grandkids, and 10,000 other things. If you're anxious... Understand that God has the remedy. 
If you're anxious, it's because you are not following God's remedy. What is God's remedy? In everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. What's the result? Peace. Verse 7. Peace. Peace that passes all understanding. It'll guard your mind. It says that's a military term depicting a century standing guard. The peace of God will guard your heart like a century standing at attention. I know that all Christians have peace with God because of Jesus Christ. We believe in Him. He's the, he is our substitute. He took all of our sins upon Himself. He died so that we might live. We have peace with God, but there are a lot of Christians that do not have the peace of God. And it can be yours in all circumstances. It flows from knowing God, from experiencing God on a daily basis. Intimacy. Do you have it with him? Intimacy. It's a closeness. It's a whispered intimacy that makes it necessary that you be close enough to hear. It's a quietness. It's a gentleness of the soul. It's an overwhelming, transcendent and glorious peace that says, I'm not worried about anything. Me and Tracy have a standing joke in the office, and he goes, he goes, I got it, Pastor Jim, don't worry about it. And I said, son, I haven't worried about anything since 1963. God's got it. God's got it. I need to worry, become anxious about nothing. In Matthew 6, 25, Jesus said, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink. Don't worry about your body or what you'll wear. Don't worry about your body. Don't worry about your health. Don't worry about the doctor's diagnosis. Don't worry about these things. Is life not more important than food and the body more important than clothes? I remember when Paul had a physical infirmity in his body. Three times it says in 2 Corinthians that he asked God to take it away from him. And God said, yep, yeah, no. My grace is sufficient. Some of us have asked for healing personally or for others. And God has said, no. There is a death that takes place in you when your body is infirmed. When you're sick, you don't sin much. Now, chronic illness can make you bitter. It can make you better. If you understand and embrace it as God's perfect will for you, or He wouldn't have allowed it. Sometimes our weakness allows His strength to be manifest in other ways. And we have to be willing to say, if this is God's will for me, I'm good with that. I will praise Him for it. Paul was very thankful for the thorn in his flesh that kept him humble. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus said, Come unto me, all of you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest. For your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Your burden is light only if you give all of your anxieties to the Lord. 
Satan every day is, is trying to stick bricks in your backpack. And if, <clears throat> excuse me, you don't hand them over one by one to the Lord, you're going to quickly find yourself under a burden that no man could bear and you were never meant to bear. Oh, the worry, oh, the stress, oh, the anxiety, oh, the infirmity, oh, my health, oh, the future, oh, the cost of living. Unload your backpack. Give it to Jesus. You're bearing a burden. He never meant for you to bear. He's not trying to crush you with the things that you go through in life. He's trying to teach you to hand off the burden. That's what Matthew 11 is all about, but a lot of us don't do that, and we think somehow or another that's all right. So we become a burden to ourselves. We em embrace this, this burden that we haven't given to God, and we take it out on everybody else, and we become bitter. I'm mad. I hurt all the time. My knees don't work. I hate life. Yeah, that's a great Christian testimony, isn't it? There's a lot at stake, and people are watching. The result, verse 7, if we do this thing God's way, is His peace. Verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on such things. Do you see that the battle is for the mind? You have to focus, Christian. You have to focus. Think on these things. Not about all the evil in the world. Not about my falling apart old body. Not, don't think on those things. Think on such things that Paul just mentioned there in verse 8. The battle's for the mind. Satan knows that. Most Christians don't take it seriously. They don't understand that that is what spiritual warfare is all about. It takes place mostly right here in your mind. That's where spiritual warfare is played out. Not in outward attacks, but inward attacks. That's where the thought bombs are planted, the doubts, the despair, the worry, the anxiety. <clears throat> Paul understood how a person's thought life can control everything else that goes on in his life. The Proverbs say this in Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks... So he is. Henry Ford used to put it this way long, long time ago at the turn of the uh, 20th century. <clears throat> Whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're probably right. He understood the battles for the mind. If you think you can, you probably can. If you think you can't, you've already defeated yourself. The enemy has won. Think on the right stuff. Take captive every thought. Guard your thought life, please. Guard your thought life. Don't, let, don't allow Satan to take you into the realm of fantasy or impropriety or pornography. Don't let Satan lead you into that place. All you have to do to let him win is lay down and do nothing. And he'll take your mind on a wild ride to be sure. Think on the right stuff. Verse 8 tells us what to think on. And for some of you, that's your highlighter passage because you have lost the battle for the mind and have given the enemy far too much access. You've let your thought life be completely uncontrolled. You've not even tried to control. You just kind of let your 
thought life take you wherever it wanted to. Read the rest of verse 8. <clears throat> what a person allows to occupy his mind will sooner or later determine his speech and his conduct. Careful what you think on. What he says there in verse 9 as we close this, simply this, put it into practice. Whatever you have learned or have received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. This is, Christianity must be intensely practical. This is not theological. This is not philosophical. I'm not, this is not a 12-step program to better your life. Church is a place where you come to the cross and die. And you live a, a new life in Christ Jesus by the power of His Holy Spirit. But you understand these truths won't do you any good at all unless you put them into practice yourself. That's the part I can't control. These are the things that we must do. Just do it. What do you want me to do, Pastor Jim? Chapter 4. Just do it. I'm begging you in Jesus' name <clears throat> because the things that you allow your mind to dwell on are the things that you will eventually act upon. And truth is of no value at all unless it's put into practice. So dwelling on these virtues that he's just outlined here for us, it'll result in a life of moral purity and excellence. But you've got to control where your mind goes. If you do these things, if you think on these things, God's peace will be experienced more and more than you've ever experienced so far. I saw this little gem on my daughter's gymnastics class so, so many years ago now when she was a little girl, but it really challenged me at the time as a pastor. It said this, if you want to perform like a champion, you have to practice like one. True of Christians as well. If you want to perform like a champion Christian, you have to practice like one. Satan's not playing games, nor must the church. <clears throat> Oswald Chambers, in his devotional, My Utmost for His Highest, a highly regarded devotional, I highly recommend. He said this, quote, The secret of power and contentment is found in Jesus and Him alone, in our personal and daily walk with Him. Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Our Lord's words are not do this or don't do that, but come unto me. If I will simply come to Jesus, my real life will be brought into harmony with my real desires. I will actually cease from sin, and I will find the song of the Lord beginning in my life. When is the last time you simply came to Jesus would you rather do anything than this one simple childlike thing, come to me? If you really want to experience ceasing from sin, you must come to Jesus, thy patience, Lord, thy comfort, Lord, thy peace, Lord, because I do not have these things in and of myself. Jesus Christ makes himself the test to determine your genuineness. At the most unexpected moments in your life, there is this whisper of the Lord, Come to me. And immediately you're drawn to him. Personal contact with Jesus changes everything. My prayer is that you have enough happiness to keep you sweet, enough trials to keep you strong, enough sorrow to keep you human, enough hope 
to keep you happy, enough failure to keep you humble, enough success to keep you eager, enough friends to give you comfort, enough wealth to meet your needs, and enough enthusiasm to make you look forward to tomorrow, enough determination to make each day and yourself better than the day before. As the praise band comes up,